0: LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss, and if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hey there, Cremholics. It is Kinsey, your host today, to bring you a very special episode this week. If you are in our group on Facebook, then I'm sure by now that you have noticed that I have talked about Eric Hyder quite a bit in the last two weeks. If you did tune in to Taylor McAllister's episode on Still a Mystery, then it is most likely that you also watched Eric Hyder's. Eric's life was taken on his job site when he was buried alive by the crew that he worked with. Shortly after his story aired on Still a Mystery, Eric's daughter Bryn reached out to me and asked if we would cover Eric's story and I said Absolutely. We end up finding out that Eric's mom, Mary Ellen, actually lives in the same town here as Holly and I in Rapid City, South Dakota. This ended up giving Holly and I the opportunity to go meet Mary Ellen in person and sit with her and talk about Eric and his case and everything that they have done to try and get him justice. You guys, we end up spending four hours at Mary Ellen's kitchen table just laughing and crying and having so much frustration over the injustice in his case. No one has been held responsible for Eric's death yet, even if it for sure was an accident, which they don't even know. You cannot bury someone alive, walk off the job site, say that they walked away, even though you know that they did not, and expect this to just disappear and not a single person be held responsible. Over the four hours that we were with Mary Ellen, we really got deep down into what they had been working on in order to try and get Eric some justice. Their family deserves answers, their family deserves to have somebody held responsible. The more we share Eric's name, the more the story is going to get out there, and the more that somebody is going to be held responsible. While listening to this episode, you're going to learn just how much Mary Ellen and Bren love Eric. These two are not going to stop until somebody's held responsible. And let me tell you, these two are fighters. Somebody eventually is going to be held responsible for his death, and we are here to help them make sure that gets done. After spending so much time with Mary Ellen and getting to listen to stories about Eric's childhood and who he was and all these different things about his life, it's really as if Holly and I knew him personally. After speaking with Mary Ellen, we definitely have gained new family. And when we got in Holly's car that night when we left her house, I looked at Holly and I told her, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I really felt as if Eric was there with us at, like, at her table. I There was just this strong, overwhelming feeling that his spirit was there with us. And she said, it's not crazy. She's like, I'm about to start tearing up again because that's exactly how I felt listening to mary ellen talk about eric is just a very humbling experience and i am so excited to be able to share this with you guys
1: he was a social butterfly he got along with anybody and everybody and he always had that elvis look because the left side of his face was partially paralyzed always say the king is in the house (laughs) (laughs) which he thought was pretty cool Even with everything he had gone through, he was still such a soft-hearted, caring, loving, doting person. And yes, a mama's boy. We spent many, many hours together, many days together. Eric was Eric. It was, love me for who I am or don't bother with me. I don't care. I mean, he just, he didn't care. It was whatever. And they got into, they don't make them anymore, but they were Genco jeans. Oh, You <laughs> know, the Gencos, yes. 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 oh gosh. Yes. <laughs> the Genco jeans, the Genco pullover, the you know. That's what he wanted for Christmas one year was a pair of Genco jeans. <laughs> well, Eric, do you realize they're about 70 bucks a pair? <laughs> <laughs> Anything. I mean, he, he was so easy to get along with. And he loved anything outside, whether it was snow skiing or water skiing or fishing or boating or anything, anything that he could do outside, he, he loved. And he'd always call me at work at the goofiest times for the goofiest things. Like one day he called me up and goes, Mom! I need you to bring your car to the creek. And I said, why? I got a fish, and it's too big to take home on my bike. It'll be rotten by the time I get home. (laughs) Fine. Let me see if I can take my break. Hurry, Mom. Got to the creek, loaded up these fish, took off for home, and I told him, I said, you do not clean this in my house. I come home from work, there's a fish on my counter. Scales all over. And when he'd work, he did all kinds of jobs. I mean, he started out as a busboy. He washed dishes. He waited on tables. And he was a big flirt. Mm-hmm. And he would have husbands upset with their wives mm-hmm. because he would <laughs> flirt.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I had one lady tell me that. <laughs> so it was legit. He worked in a motel. He cleaned rooms. I mean, he, he wasn't afraid of, of working. He did anything and everything. And he... He wasn't a lily white child with special privileges. He was in and out of jail. He did prison time. He had tattoos. He had piercings. He was um, into drugs. He drank. He cleaned himself up after the rotating door and was actually... Had changed his life. He even told different friends that were still using, I'm not gonna be a dick when I see you, I'll still acknowledge you, but we can't hang out.
0: One thing that I just really love so much about Mary Ellen and her family is that they have always been very upfront and open about Eric's struggles in life. It's not uncommon for people to have different types of struggles in their life and there should not be any type of stereotype around whatever they're struggling with. And unfortunately, it seemed like in this case, because Eric had troubles with drugs and he spent some time in jail, that this kind of affected his case. And if you have been listening for some time now to me and Holly cover these cases, you know that Holly and I cannot stand when a case is not getting worked on properly just because somebody has some type of stereotype around them. One thing that really kept Eric going was his kids. Eric had Bryn and her brother. And Eric had Bryn at a really young age. He was just about twenty when Bryn was born. But Bren and him had a huge bond in a really close relationship. She was just about ten years old when Eric started working for Koffle. And when Eric first disappeared, Bren really struggled with it. It hit her really hard. Being only 10 years old and having that close bond with your dad and then for him to just be gone, I honestly cannot even begin to fathom how hard that had to have been for Bren. She, she kept holding hope
1: that he was going to walk through the door. He was going to come home. He was out of friends. She kept waiting for him to walk down the street or walk in the house. We were, we had a boat and we were, Brynn and I were sitting in the boat out in our driveway. And we saw somebody walking down the street, and we both held our breath because Brynn goes, That's my dad. That's daddy. And she started yelling, Daddy. It wasn't daddy, it was her uncle. How do you explain to a little girl? We don't know where he is. We don't know what happened. We just know he's not coming home because everything was left behind. Eric had a pacemaker, he had three heart attacks before they did the pacemaker. He was 23, 25, and 27. And we knew that without any of his medications, he would never, he would never make it.
0: According to Mary Ellen, Cawful is a very small privately owned company. And over the years, they were like involved in some pretty shady stuff. But unfortunately, prior to Eric getting hired there, he was really unaware of what was actually happening and a lot of this stuff they actually did not find out until after Eric's death. And I took him for his interview.
1: And I waited and waited and waited and waited. And finally he came out. And I said, my God, what did they do? Draw blood and everything? Because you were in there forever. He goes, Mom, I have never been in an interview like that before in my life. And I said, well, why? What was so different about it? And he goes, they asked about every detail of When he was using drugs and when he was in jail, and he said, All that background, you can look up. They do a background check on you, but they questioned me in detail. And I said, Why? He said, I don't know. I've never had anything like that happen to me before. And he had worked dirt work prior for a different company some years. But he went to work for him anyway. And he, He had only worked for them three weeks, but I know the the week before it happened, we were talking, and he said, i got to find something different. He said, I can't work for them. I said, why? I said, my God, you you haven't been there that long. He said, no, they're just crazy. He said, none of them are accountable for any of the work that they do. He said, they're sloppy. He said, they don't cage, they don't tear, they don't this, they don't that. I said, well, you don't quit unless you have another job. He goes, no, I know, I know. I said, Okay. And then the morning that all this happened, I had taken Eric to work and I dropped him off and gave me a kiss and a hug and said, see you later, Ma. He said, okay. So he got out and and I watched him put his stuff in the, the work vehicle and I watched him walk down into the fenced yard where they were getting their trailers and stuff ready. And then I turned around and I drove off. Well, then that night, Jody called me, and she goes, Have you talked to Eric? I said, Not since I dropped him off. I said, Was I supposed to pick him up? She goes, No. She said, I have the car, because their car was getting worked on. I got my car back today. She goes, But I went to get him. And she goes, Everybody's vehicles were still there. So I ran and I did some errands, and I come back, and everybody's vehicles were gone, and there's no Eric. I can't get a hold of him. I said, have you tried calling coworkers?" And she said, yeah, none of them will take my call. So I said, you call the police. I will call the hospitals to see if something happened. Nobody had any registrations of Eric being in a hospital from Dickinson all the way to Bismarck. Please, you know, hadn't been missing that long, so they really weren't worried about it. So Jody's brother and brother-in-law went from New England into Dickinson and started looking. I think Brian looked until like four in the morning, went home, got a little bit of sleep, went back, and then everybody started looking because it was not like Eric not to be around.
0: All the men that were on the crew that day with Eric all stated over and over that Eric walked off the job site and just never returned. But being that Mary Ellen was really close with Eric and she just has that mother intuition, she knew that Eric never left that job site. And she kept saying over and over, I know he's there. I know that he did not walk away. Eric is still at that job site. Eric went missing on May 24th, which is Labor Day weekend, and the police just had no urgency. But she was so adamant about making sure that they checked that job
1: site for Eric. We were on our way to Dickinson. The police finally agreed to do a dig and search the grounds, because I kept saying, he's there. He's at the work site, because he wouldn't just walk off. The company kept saying he walked off to cash a check, his paycheck, which was in his lunchbox that they brought back to Bismarck that Thursday night along with a backpack that had a clean pair of shoes and a clean t-shirt because Eric wouldn't get in and out of a vehicle with his dirty shoes and stuff. And the company told the police where they were working, and they had blueprints and dug a hole, and then they drilled every 12 inches a hole in the ground and they had hound dogs that they brought from Aberdeen, South Dakota, and then dogs would sniff those holes. It was misty and rainy, and the land there was like clay, so you were slipping and sliding all over the place. But then it got dark early, and it was too wet, so they decided they were going to quit for the day. So we went back to Lincoln, and the next morning we headed back to Dickinson, and on my way back to Dickinson, police called and said, Marianne, we're about 99% sure we're going to find Eric today, so you need to make arrangements for a funeral home to accept this body. I said, okay. So I made the phone call to the funeral home, told them who I was, explained what was going on, and asked if they would um, accept Eric's body. And they said, just give him a call when we find find him. So he got to Dickinson, and They dug the second hole, and in the course of digging that second hole, and they did, they they made it a huge hole, and they hit a pipe and broke it, so it flooded. That ended the search. There was no more searching. Told us we could leave, and they took down all the yellow tape that they strip off of, And they took their little trailer and they all headed back to town. We were the last ones to leave. Because I said, he's still here. I know he is. He wouldn't have walked off. Nobody came to get him. Nobody forced him. He's here. I was considered a crazy mom that didn't know her child like I thought I did. I told him, I said, you don't understand. I knew Eric like the back of my hand. I know he would never walk off and leave everybody behind and not call or do something. He didn't even have his meds with. But after a while, they cold-cased it. And I didn't know that. I had gotten a phone call from Texas, from Namath, for the national missing. And I couldn't understand why they were getting hold of me. They needed DNA. And I said, why do you need DNA from me for your son, Eric? I said, how do you know about my son, Eric? Well, the Dickinson police referred him to us as a missing case, and it's closed. I said, it's not closed. She said, yeah, it's it's a closed case. That's how we get them. So I went round and round with Dickinson. And my granddaughter was here for Christmas. So while she was here we went here in Rapid and had our DNA swabs done and they sent them off to Texas. That's how we found out. And it just it didn't get any better than after that. I mean, found out the phone towers kept pinging back to the job site for Eric's phone while it was in his back pocket. Of course it's going to ping back to the job site. Well, it could be laying anywhere around here. As many people have searched the area, they would have found his phone. And it would get frustrating because they would, they would call and they say, We found a body. We don't know if it was Eric's. We we'll have to wait for DNA. So you're on this roller coaster, okay? Is it his body? Did they take it from the job site and they put it somewhere else? Or is it somebody else's body? Well, it'd be somebody else's body. So you're. this emotional roller coaster every time a body is found or sightings you know they saw him all over the place they saw him here in rapid they saw him in arizona roofing they saw you know you get all these and it's just heart-wrenching to have to live every day of your life like that
0: hearing the pain in mary ellen's voice over eric's death and him not getting justice is something that I will never forget. Her son never got justice because the people on his crew that day were 100% trying to cover themselves and were just being selfish. The more we discussed about Koffel, the more we talked about the people that were on that crew. Some of them were prior felons, they were on probation, they were on parole, and Mary Ellen and her family believe that the reason that they did not report Eric being buried alive, was to be able to cover themselves very selfishly.
1: Well, the one that buried Eric um, told the police, He, he wasn't questioned because when they approached him, he said, talk to my attorney, and the police never asked him who his attorney was. And he had bragged about killing someone years prior in California. and the same group that was questioned the first time was not the full group that was questioned the second time because the ones that were questioned the second time all had the same story so they were groomed very well there has been so
0: many different things in this case that has really blown my mind and one of those is the fact that they did not question any of these men on the crew right away whatsoever They called into the police to report him missing. And you think that there would be some type of urgency and you think that the police would have went straight to these men and said, hey, have you guys seen Eric? Do you know what happened to him? His family is looking for him and they're really concerned. But nothing.
1: No one was questioned until that Tuesday when they did the first dig. No one. No one. So in five days, that's a long time to get your story straight.
0: Each of the men had the same exact story, that Eric walked off to cash his paycheck, but little did they know that Eric's paycheck was still in his lunchbox this entire time.
1: They left for lunch. They went to Wendy's to eat. From Wendy's, they went to OK Tire. One of the employees had a tire that was worked on. The video showed Eric helping put the tire in the vehicle, and then they went to work. And then as soon as they got to work, the foreman had Eric get in the hole to do a coupling check because they cut the pipe too short and they put a splicer in, so there's two couplings. But they never told the police that. If none
0: of these men or Koffel had anything to be guilty for, why would they have not just told the police that there was two cufflinks on that pipe? By telling them that there was only one cuffling on that pipe, they knew they were saving themselves because if they had access to that second cufflink, the police would have found Eric during that first dig.
1: So when they dug, they dug up one coupling, and then they headed south. Instead of going north to the other coupling where Eric was, they went the opposite direction. So the hole that they dug and the ones that they drilled through, and then the next day when they dug that big one, they were so far away by then, of course they weren't going to find him.
0: Do you think that they led them in the wrong direction on purpose?
1: Yep. Because there was a, a company across the street, kitty cornered, and the owner of that company came and told the police, you're in the wrong area. My trucks had to jag around and make a sharp turn into our yard. So that's not where they were working, where you're digging. Some home- homeowners, there was a gentleman that would sit on his back deck and have coffee and watch him. He came and told the police. That's not where they were working, especially when they were digging way out of the area. That's not where they were working. Everybody was told to mind their own business and to stay off the property.
0: So they went, no, that's not okay.
1: And every time I would come through and go to North Dakota, I would stop in Dickinson and I'd be at the job site. But then the one detective told me, he said, You know, Mary Ellen, you shouldn't be there. So the next time I went, I was standing there and I called up and I said, Hey, Kylan, this is Mary Ellen. I'm at the job site. And then another time, my husband and I went up. They were laying in the curb and gutter. And I I ran up to him and I said, when are they paving this? And the guy said, I have no idea. He said, we're only doing the curb and gutter. He said, why? My son is buried here. And they're not going to pave it without my being here. I will sit with my lawn chair in the middle. They can either pave around me or they can arrest me. Either way, I don't care. They're not paving over my son. Next time we come through, it was already concreted. The only advantage we had was that from the end where they stopped the concrete to the main road, it was still dirt. They never finished it. Usually you would put asphalt. They didn't do that. All those years, they didn't finish it, which is a godsend.
0: After the first dig being done and they completely lied about where they were working... And then doing a second dig due to Mary Ellen begging and pleading with them to do a second dig. And still nothing came up and they were being told to stay away from the property. Mary Ellen and her husband ended up saving up money to be able to hire a PI to be able to further investigate Eric's case.
1: I, I did anything and everything I could. We had garage sales. We sold other stuff. We um, saved I mean, anything and every... We cut every corner we could cut to try to get enough to get a PI and a contract, because if you don't have the money, you don't have a contract. They investigated myself, my husband. They looked into the case before they even accepted us. And North Dakota would not work with RPI. They weren't going to let him in the state they weren't going to let him at the job site they weren't going to honor his licensing the FBI actually licensed him for North Dakota to get in I said from the very beginning I wasn't going to stop until I took my last breath and if I didn't have a breath to take anymore you better be looking at the same company that killed my son and I said they had blood on their hands and it wasn't going to wash off and I was going to be their worst nightmare And I am still.
0: Even though it was a bit of a process to get this private investigator hired, it would end up being a complete blessing for Eric, Mary Ellen, and her family because not long after they hired that private investigator, they ended up finding Eric on the job site right where Mary Ellen had said he was this entire time.
1: It was amazing. It was amazing. RPI did so much studying and investigating and searching once we signed that contract it was unbelievable he would go to job sites here and watch them and walk with them and learn everything about that kind of work. I never knew that be buried that long in the dirt that everything turns brown everything you know I mean, it was just amazing, the stuff that he searched and looked up and got into. And then he brought cadaver dogs from Colorado. The
0: second thing that really blew my mind in this case was the fact that during one of those first two digs, the Dickinson Police Department brought hound dogs to the site to help search for Eric. I really feel that with all the training that you have as a police officer, you would know dang well that a hound dog is not the type of dog to be looking for a body. So that is why that private investigator ended up bringing his own cadaver dogs to help locate Eric.
1: We signed in February and they found Eric in May. That time is when they were doing all their investigating, all their looking things up, and like I said, following a job site. It has to have, the wind has to be only in like five miles an hour. The air temp has to be a certain temp. I mean, for these dogs to do what they need to do, there's a lot of criteria. You just don't bring a cadaver dog anytime you want and expect them to pinpoint. That's not how it works four different dogs, and I was amazed that these were the dogs that came, and one by one, not all at the same time, but one by one, they were let out, there was two cars, two dogs in each car, they would go in through the ditch, around, and sit, and they would go, go potty, sit. The older one laid. We even had a knee brace that Eric had worn, and we kept it in the freezer so that the dogs would have something to Mm -hmm. smell. I had to leave the job site and go watch from a hill with binoculars because the dogs would come after my scent. We even had a knee brace that Eric had worn, and we kept it in the freezer so that the dogs would have something to Mm -hmm. smell. I had to leave the job site and go watch from a hill with binoculars because the dogs would come after my scent. They had to meet with the city. I mean, there's a a lot more to it than just having the dogs and then digging right away. They had to meet with the city. They had to get approval. The city fought them. They said, you're not digging during work hours because there was still construction going around there. One... Person asked who was going to pay the wages of all the workers because nobody could work, and RPI I said, I will. Another one patted RPI on the back and said, I'll bet you a million bucks you're not going to find the kid. RPI said, I'll bet you we do. I mean, they were so adamant about us not being there and digging. So after hours, the day that they did dig, um, were you do there? No. No. I didn't know they were digging that day. I had no clue. Like I said, everything was, Mm -hmm. we don't cross the line. We don't ask questions. We let you do your job. That's why we paid you. We sit back and chew our fingernails and wait.
0: I have to give major kudos to Mary Ellen and her husband for not wanting to call that investigator every single day. Their son is missing, so the fact that they were able to hold back like that and let them do their job is really impressive. Like Mary Ellen stated, not long after the private investigator was hired, they ended up finding Eric's body in May of 2015. Mary Ellen and her husband were not too far from Dickinson when they got the call that Eric's body was found in the exact same spot that Mary Ellen had been saying it was this entire time right in the same exact
1: spot mary allen said that they would find him got in we took straight off for dickinson ate on the way that they had packed us lunches for we got there they still hadn't started digging because they were still waiting for everybody to get there because we had to have the coroner and the anthropologist the i mean you name it they had to be there we had people from other states flying in and then they started um taking the, the dirt away, little by little, and they would have their brushes out, and they would, like you see in the movies where they're looking for dinosaurs, they have their brushes, and they're brushing the dirt away, and the more they brush, the more body you could see. And they weren't going to let me over there. And I, I got mad, and I told them, I said, I have waited three years. There is no way in hell you're going to keep me away from this. You either arrest me or you get the hell out of my way. I am not going to leave when they found my son, exactly where I told you he has been for the last frickin' three years. So they called the Dickinson detective and said, We have his mom. She wants over there. He said, I'm on my way. He comes walking goes, You're going to have to drive all the way up and around and come around the other way and come in. We did that, got there. They weren't going to let me past. And I said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm his mom. I'm going to be there. Well, you have to sign in. I said, I don't have to do jack shit. I have been telling you for three years, and you have lied to me. You've gone behind my back. You've made fun of me that has gotten back to me no i'm going so they got on the radio they called again the Detective, two detectives walked up to me then Marianne, we can't let you in there they have to do their job we can let you in and look in intervals when we get so far we'll let you come and look i said no 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 that's not going to work for me i'm going to be there we can't let you interrupt their digging So every so often, they would come over, I would have to sign in, and they would let me look. So I took off running on the bank so that I could see more of him. And they came after me and told me if I was going to keep doing things like that, I would have to leave. I said, then arrest me because I'm not leaving. I don't give a shit. I'll make publicity one way or another. So they let me stay. When they finally had him all brushed off and you could see he was kneeling on the pipe and he had a long torso. And Dan just wanted to yell, "Eric, get up! You're getting your pants dirty." <laughs> and they had the audacity to say, "You don't know if that's your son or not. We have to do a DNA on." I said, "You got to be kidding me! You don't think I know my son's body?" As I'm going down there, you can't go in the hole. I said, but then you better be hanging on to me because I'm going down there, and they did. I couldn't go down there. They basically rolled Eric over to his side into a body bag, carried him up the hill that they had dug, and put him in the back of a pickup. They had two grates that were probably two feet by two feet. And they would take five gallon buckets and they would put dirt in there and they would dump it on the grates and two people would be shaking the grates. And what they were looking for was any extra bones or teeth or any body parts. So when they were all done with that, they would take the buckets. And I said, I'm not leaving until I get to see him. Well, we can't open the bag because of the smell and everything. I said, I don't care. You don't understand. You're not leaving here with his body without me seeing him. We can't open the bag. We went round and round and round. Finally, I said, I promise... I won't touch the bag. I won't unzip it, but I'm not leaving here until I get to see, at least, go up to it. So they agreed, and another detective walked with us. It was my son, John, my granddaughter, my husband, and myself. And the detective. And we were standing at the back of the pickup. And this guy came and was going to put those grates and shovels in the back with him. And I just glared at him. And I said, you will not put that in the back of this pickup with my son's body. I don't care what you do with it, but you get it the hell out of here. And then the detective told us it was time to go. I said, I'm not leaving yet. So we all held on to each other and we prayed. And then they told us that they had to leave because the anthropologist had gone to the airport and she flew up to Grand Forks to get everything ready for Eric's body. And the pickup that he was in had to go out and meet another pickup that they were going to transport his body all the way to Grand Forks Inn. So when they left, they said, OK, you can leave now. I said, I'll leave when I'm ready to leave. I'm not leaving now. And they went the opposite way that we came in. and It was just a dirt path road. And we watched the pickup. Until we couldn't see it anymore, and then the police got all of their things together, and then they left. They took all of their stuff, and everybody left. We were the only ones there. We just kind of, kind of walked around. We went into the hole. Where his body was. It was getting dark, and my girl, one of my girlfriends, and her husband got us a room at one of the motels. He said, "You're not driving home, like this." So we stayed, and then the next morning we headed back to to Rapid and right when we got into town, we were only home maybe half an hour and we met with our PI. We went over everything that had gone on.
0: Crimeaholics, I just wanted to step in for one quick sec before Mary Ellen goes over the autopsy for Eric. I understand that this part is very emotional It's raw and straight from Mary Ellen's feelings and what she experienced. I wanted to leave a little trigger warning to let everybody know that we do not typically go this in-depth when talking about cases. However, we want you guys to listen, if you can, to understand exactly what Mary Ellen and her family have gone through and how important it is that we share this story. So yes, it does get a little graphic, and if it is not something that you'll be able to handle listening to, I do suggest fast-forwarding through the next few
1: minutes. And then, Grand Forks had Eric's body for quite a while, doing their autopsy and stuff. So when we last seen him, he was kneeling on that pipe and an adult body bag. When we got him back, we got back an infant body bag. While he was in Grand Forks, even after being buried for three years, his body was still preserved. He still had his his beard. He still had skin still see the tattoos on his body his organs were still intact so through the autopsy they found that there was no dirt in his lungs which means he, he didn't breathe once he was covered and they sent his liver off for toxology reports. Came back, no drugs, no alcohol. But they had to, they had to cut every piece of skin, muscle, hair, off of his bones. And they cooked his bones until they turned white so that they could see if there was any stabs or gunshot wounds or bruising or breaks. And that's when they found his nose was broke. So when the dirt hit him on the back because he was kneeling on the pipe checking the coupling. It knocked his hard hat forward and his ear muffs. One was still in his ear, the other one was on his cheek. But when the hat came down, it broke his nose and that knocked him out immediately. So he never had that chance to... It was just exhale. Well, his pacemaker gave us a time of... Time and date of death, which is twelve nineteen, on the twenty fourth, at twelve fifteen, the loader operator was on a personal phone call when he buried Eric. When we got his remains back, when you opened the body bag it was all his bones with his skull and there's four brown paper bags labeled right foot left foot left hand skin and tissue we never got his right hand back to this day the hand they found the night they found his body we've never gotten back to this day. The glove that they opened and saw his hand in that broke off and the officer threw on the ground. We don't know where it is. How do you misplace a hand? I I couldn't, I couldn't bury him again. I had him cremated. He's on my headboard, on my bed. I couldn't put him back in the ground. So I got a lot of grief about that. But there were nights where, before we found him, it would be cold out and I just wanted to take a blanket and cover him. Where the summer wouldn't be so hot. I just wanted to give him water. Kind of ironic when we found him on a water pipe. since we found him and we we had his funeral at the, at the river which was kind of different the, the funeral home didn't know quite what to do with me the night before we lit off little candle lanterns into the river and let him float down everybody wrote a personal message on it for Eric and then the next day we had the services. You brought a lawn chair and if you wanted your dog with, you brought your dog with. But that was Eric. That was how he would have wanted it. And since then it's just even at the funeral, RPI was there. We had police there. We didn't know who was going to come. After everything that had been going on, we've never heard one word from the company. Um, not we're sorry, or sorry for your loss, or kiss my ass, or anything. Nothing. Not one word. It's been over eight years, and not a word. Not even most companies you work for will send a plant nothing we've had three different attorneys one just stopped corresponding with us just simply stopped kept the money but you know just stopped corresponding Uh, another one worked with us for over a year had me called me out and asked to come and meet him in Bismarck. So I did, during our conversation, told me I needed to put $100,000 in a kitty. And when that got down, I'd need to bump it back up. And I looked at him, I said, I don't have that kind of money. You know I don't. He says, yeah, I know. I said, then why are you telling me? That's what I need to do. He says, it's time to let it go. And I looked at him and I said, if I went out and I buried your neighbor's dog alive by tonight, I'm in jail with a bond over my head, waiting for court. And they can bury my son alive and walk. And he looked at me and he just put his head down and he shook his head, you're right. That was when the pipeline was coming in and they were fighting it and he could make more off the res fight. And I'm not in any mean way putting down the riz I was born and raised on a res. But to drop hours because you're going to make more off of of that. That is morally not right. After having us for a, a year another one she was so excited to work with us and couldn't wait and then she called me up, and she was with a firm with five other attorneys and said it was conflict of interest. One of the other attorneys had worked with someone dealing with Koffel. And we haven't been able to get a North Dakota attorney since. So I don't have a lot of um, nice things to say about North Dakota even though that's where I was raised. I went to school, went to college, and worked. and Both my two older sons were born in Bismarck and went to school. Eric went to college. They both worked in North Dakota. I still have two sons in North Dakota right now. And four of my grandkids are there and my great-grandson. It's so frustrating They have had these big to-dos about deaths at the workplace where they have a celebration of their life, like at Christmas or, or another holiday. And, and I've commented more than once, my son's name isn't on that list. Why? He died at a work site at work. Why isn't he on that? And I never get an answer back and its name was never included. Little things that are just maddening. We had a benefit some friends put on for Eric, North Dakota. There was no revenue, hardly at all. It was was ridiculous. We did a protest we had signs and we went to Dickinson, we were at the police station, we were at the courthouse, because the state's attorney is there, went to Bismarck and they asked us if we had permits to do the protests. So we couldn't be on the properties. Yeah. There is There's so much frustration. So we are, we've been fighting this whole time. First, the third years were to get Eric's body. These last years have been to get justice.
0: I without a doubt believe that each and every one of you who have listened to Mary Allen tell Eric's story, now feels connected to them on a much personal level. This entire story has been extremely emotional, it's been hard to listen to, and it's been heartbreaking knowing that Eric, Bren, Mary Allen, and the rest of their family have not got justice yet. I say this so many times in almost every case that we cover, Holly and I cannot stress enough how important it is to keep saying Eric's name. Crimeholics, like always, we're calling on you to help. We're calling on you to be the voice for Eric and his family. They need help from the public, and Holly and I are going to do whatever we can to assist them in getting justice for Eric. Mary Ellen has been doing vendor shows since the very beginning to try and get money for this private investigator. In order to keep pushing further into Eric's case, they would like to rehire that private investigator. Unfortunately, it costs a lot and funds are limited. Mary Ellen and Bryn are working so hard to be able to raise the funds for Eric to be able to hire that private investigator back. Bryn currently has a GoFundMe page in Eric's Facebook group called Justice for Eric Heider that you can go and donate on the GoFundMe page. With the help of my husband, we have designed Justice for Eric t-shirts that we will be selling and all those profits will be going straight to Mary Ellen and Bren. We have several other things that we will be working on in order to help raise awareness about Eric's story and help raise funds so they can hire back that PI because somebody has to be held responsible for Eric's death. You cannot just bury somebody alive due to negligence and just get away with it. If you have not, I highly encourage you to join our Crimeaholics podcast discussion group on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. These are the two places that you'll be able to find out what we have in the works for Eric and his family. Crimeaholics, as always, be aware and take care.